Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 181, and today we are joined by Will Primos, and we're discussing the whitetail rut, calling strategies for deer, hunting the south, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are in for a treat. Uh, not as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of like stupid, cheesy Halloween jokes, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to make a Halloween joke. We are in for a treat today because we are joined by the one and only Will Primos. And uh, Will really, really doesn't need any introduction at all, but I'll give a very brief one anyways. Will is the founder of Primos Game Calls. He's the host of Primo's Truth About the Hunting Truth About Hunting TV show, and he's one of the leading voices in the deer hunting community. And today, we're actually I actually recorded this interview with Will um, a couple days ago, and in that conversation, we talked about the whitetail rut, we talked about calling strategies for deer, we talked about hunting whitetails in the south, uh, we talked about using terrain features, the future of deer hunting, all sorts of interesting things like that. And I got to tell you, um, since I do know how it all went, I can I can say that I think this one's really good. Uh, Will is just somebody that at least I could listen to talk or, or tell stories for for just hours. He's a really enjoyable person to to spend some time with. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to our conversation with Will, uh, we need to take our weekly you know, our weekly intro BS session, pregame show extravaganza. We need to take a few minutes to do that, uh, especially because at this time of year, what that usually means is that we get to talk about how our hunts have been going. And uh, that's that's the game plan for, for tonight, right, Dan? That's right. I want to apologize for not being able to make it to the uh, Will Primos interview, but I was uh, balls deep in diapers. <laughs> that sounds like a really... A horrible visualization. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. we had to, we had to do a funky timing for this one to record it, and and you are super busy these days with the seventeen kids you have, right? Yeah, it feels like seventeen kids. It also feels like I run a prison some days. <laughs> what are you doing with these kids? Uh, well, they're the wardens. They tell me what to do basically, oh. and I'm the inmate. 
I see. I, I have a lot to learn, I guess. Oh man. My, I, I asked my, I asked my uncle one day, I said, Hey man, what's the, what's the trick to raising kids? And he said, Oh, you just got to ignore them. <laughs> and I, you know, I start thinking about that. The more, the longer I have kids, the more I realize that that is a serious thing. You have to, at times you have to just ignore them. Yeah. I, I, I could see that there's some truth to that. Cause I mean, yeah. shoot, look at someone like, look at our generation, the millennials, we got so much attention all the time for everything. And now everyone's so, you know, over you. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And so much entitlement. I, yeah. everything should be about me. That might be because we didn't get ignored enough. So <laughs> we, right. we need to write that wrong for the next gen. Um, I don't know how I can speak about any of this since I have no experience at all, but <laughs> This is what I'm thinking about. I'm three you're, months you're, three months away from being a parent. So I tell you what, you're like that person who, when when I talk at my job to somebody uh, about my kids, they're like, "Yeah, my kids are are crazy too." I'm like, "I didn't know you had kids." Yeah, my dogs. Yeah, <laughs> my dogs are uh, they're crazy. Yeah, I, I think of my dogs as my kids, and I'm just I go, "Man, shut up." Because yeah. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could put my dogs in the base or my kids in the basement, <laughs> lock them there for a day. I can't do that. I just want to say that we do know, we do not condone the placing of children in the basement. This is not a recommendation by Dan. <laughs> or is it? Well, I, no, I said I, I wish I could. I can't. You know, you can't. Uh... When, when your son goes to the bathroom on the carpet you can't hit him with a rolled up newspaper <laughs> that's true i wish i could but i can't oh man we better we better move on to something we're better at because <laughs> we are not good at parenting advice no <laughs> although no. i don't i don't know if we ever said this on the podcast but you know you know we got a review of the podcast on itunes and somebody actually said that they feel like they're a better parent today because of dan's advice so that's hey. that's pretty profound dude you've had an impact Look for the book 2018. <laughs> <laughs> okay, deer. deer. Deer, yeah. Have you been deer hunting at all since we talked last week? Yes. Uh, I went out. I got out Sunday morning and Sunday evening. How'd it go? Dude, I tell you what. Um, Sunday morning had a really good uh, three-year-old come through. Eight-pointer. Wouldn't score. You know, he wasn't going to score um, anything major, but – head on he looked awesome like he's that buck that if he snuck up on you you may shoot him because you you look right at his rack he was about two to three inches outside of his ears on each side not very tall tines but he had good brows uh really good mass um but so he came out of the crp so i saw him for a long time and uh then when he ended up getting close enough for me what i guess you can say considered a pass um, I could tell that his body was definitely not mature and, uh, that right there just was like, nope. So I just sat down and watched the, you know, watched him chase, a, a group full of does and, um, he was kind of bouncing all over the place. And, you know, we always talk about seeing cool things in the tree stand mm -hmm. really quick. I want to share this, this really cool thing I noticed. Okay. So this, this doe he was chasing had a fawn and, um, it wasn't like running real hard, but he was just kind of trotting after her, grunting, and she'd run off a little ways, put her head down, run off a little ways. Well, one time he let out a kind of a louder grunt, and this fawn like mock charged this three-year-old buck, 
like to say, get away from my mom, you know, like (laughs) something like that. It was it was really cool to see. And then he just kind of he kind of took him by surprise. So he kind of jumped a little bit. But then he kind of like he put his head down like just a little bit. And then that that fawn took off running. So, yeah, the bluff got called. Wow. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'd never seen anything like that before. But and then, you know, Sunday night. Um, I went down to one of my best, like my historically good stands. It's basically that the, uh, uh, this bedding area. And if you remember last year, the farm got logged. Uh huh. Wasn't that two years ago? Yeah, it could have been two years ago. Maybe it was two years ago. Anyway, whenever it was. So now all these treetops are down. There's, it's really thick. It's really nasty. And, uh, I'm telling you. The, the deer were packed in there. The does started coming out. I saw several young bucks kind of chasing, um, chasing, the, harassing these does. Um, and then I heard some crashing kind of coming through the one part of this bedding area. And I saw antlers and I saw legs and he went down into the creek. I put my binos on him. I couldn't really see what he was, but it looked like a buck I had trail camera pictures of, a good four-year-old um, that would – would definitely be on the hit list. I couldn't a hundred percent identify him, but I gave him a couple grunts. He kind of stopped and looked my way behind all the bushes. Um, but then I heard him grunt and take off. And I think I didn't see the doe, but I'm assuming there was a, a doe that he was kind of going after. So wow. the short of it, that's uh that was my weekend, dude. Uh, check some trail cameras. I got some dandies that uh showed up except they're like 10 o'clock at night so new new bucks uh one of them is the buck that i showed you right he's still (laughs) he's still on the same camera he's just stupid yeah and then another buck that matches his size exact same eight like exact same eight point frame but no split no split g2 wow so he's a clean eight uh, and then the other trail cameras, man, I haven't checked yet, um, and I won't check them until I actually go hunt that, those stand locations uh, in the next two weeks. Cool, cool. Well, not a bad day. No, it was a it was a good day. It was like a that really crisp crisp morning. The only issue I had was the weather. I don't know if you ever run into this, but the weather channel or wherever I get my weather from said we got a south wind. It's going to turn southwest mid morning. And I got to my tree stand and my, my wind was almost straight east with a little bit of south in it. And it wasn't where the deer were coming out. So I figured, Hey, I'm just, I'm just being aggressive, real overly aggressive with this wind. But typically these deer pile out on a southeast, southwest wind. So um, I, I, I let it ride and luckily nothing came through. And when, you know, the, the deer that did come through, uh, were like some four corn bucks and, uh, they just ignored, I mean, they couldn't smell me. They, they must've ignored the Ozonics must've been working, you know, whatever. So yeah. Yeah. that was my Sunday, man. And you know, I'm now I'm looking forward to, uh, to, you know, Friday and, uh, the next two weeks, man. Hey, it's going to be good. It's going to be here before you know it. That's right. Now, the now wait, wait. Yeah, the rutcation. Holyfield question mark. Yeah. So that'll be the finale of my update. Let's 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 uh start up just after we last talked. Okay. So last time we talked, I went in for Holyfield. 
went into my ground, went into my box blind, and it was infested with bees, so I had to hunt somewhere else. <laughs> the next night, went to another stand in a good spot. The day's going really well. I've got 15 does out feeding around me with like an hour and 45 minutes of daylight still. I'm like, all right, this is it. Like the deer are really moving. They're moving early. This is the kind of night that a mature buck would show. And then at like 5.30, like an hour and a half before daylight, while all these deer are all around me, all of a sudden I hear a chainsaw fire up on the neighboring property and all the deer go running out. So that was the end of that night. Hunted the next night, didn't see much. Um, so then after that, I got to thinking, you know, I've hunted three or four days now on this property. It's not going right. It's not going well. Haven't seen really any really great daylight activity, no daylight activity on trail camera as far as Holyfield and haven't seen any rutting activity yet. So I thought, you know, I'm going to give it a break. I'm going to go down to Ohio for a couple days. So I bombed down to Ohio, hunted for two and a half days down there. Um, I had two good sets of encounters, um, Sunday night, I think it was Sunday night. Um, I saw two different, like three-year-olds probably in the 120 class, um, passed on one of them. The other one was across the valley from me, but it was cool seeing them cruising. And then, um, then I made a mistake. All right. I did something that I always talk about not doing. I, I what I did here is I did not practice what I preach. Um, and I had a reason to do this, but it just proved to be poorly timed. So okay. Here's the scenario. I had been sitting this tree stand, and midday, I had a trail camera about 70 yards away I wanted to check. So I go check that trail camera, check the pictures. It shows one of our big, mature shooter bucks had been at that camera in daylight two nights before, and then like five nights before that um, at 6.45 p.m. both times, right around there, give or take a couple minutes. So Consistent wind on both encounters? Yes. Re- okay. Pretty close to the same wind that we had that night. So I'm thinking, well, there's a decent chance he might be coming through here again tonight um, in daylight. The issue was I couldn't see. Even though it was only 70 yards away, there was a little bit of thick cover in the way. So I couldn't really see that. So if that buck came through there, I wouldn't really know unless he continued in my direction. So I had this idea. I was like, you know what? When 645 comes around, I'm going to try a little calling sequence just because, you know, not much has been going on, can't hurt. Give it a shot. I'm down in Ohio. Um, I'll be a little aggressive. And so the night progresses, and as 6.45 rolls around, I decide, all right, I'm going to do my calling sequence. Now, the thing I usually preach is I don't like to blind call. Personally, I typically do not call to deer unless I can actually see them Um, because, you know, there's a number of different risks. Now, I know some people blind call, and it works for them. It's just maybe I'm overly cautious and conservative, but I worry about spooking deer I don't see. I worry about maybe getting a deer's attention that I don't know is around and then him coming in from a direction I don't, you know, I'm not aware of and then him catching moving or something, um, et cetera, et cetera. So 645 rolls around. I, uh, it's very, it's kind of windy. So I have to be kind of loud and, and aggressive with my grunt. So I do like a loud grunt and then I'm like, why not try a snort wheeze? So then I hammer out a snort wheeze and, um, I hear kaboom, boom, 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 <laughs> and I spin around, and I see a white tail about forty yards away, bounding away from me. And I pull up my binoculars, and I see a great big rack on top of this buck's head. Really? So there was this buck that was at least forty yards, if not closer, coming towards me. My my assumption would be since I hadn't seen him before. Um, now I'd been like looking around me and stuff, but 
It, you did the pre-rattle scan, didn't you? I, I'm sure I did a scan, but I obviously didn't do a good enough scan. Even though, like where he was, where where he ran into, and where I'm assuming he was coming from, it's kind of thick, and it was low light. You know, it was only 15 minutes of daylight left. It was kind of windy, so everything's moving. So I did a quick look around, didn't see anything, um, but I obviously did not look well enough because he was very close and closing the distance. And then I go and make a loud grunt and a snort wheeze when he's maybe 35 or 40 yards away. And, um, and then he bounded off. Ugh. Now, um, I don't know how big he was, you know, cause all I could see was a couple seconds of him going through this brush heading away. Um, and I'm looking at him from behind and, you know, deer always look bigger than they maybe always, they actually are when you see them from behind. Um, yeah. but, uh, he looked, I don't know. And he could have been maybe from one twenties to one forties. I don't know, somewhere in that ballpark, but, uh, not a buck that you want to spook. It would be the, the moral of that story. But uh, he didn't yeah. seem to be too spooked because he made a couple bounds and then he stopped. I saw him stop and then he kind of just walked off. But um, so do you think he was it was just taken by surprise or do you think he he caught your wind? I think he just got taken by surprise. He did not catch my wind. Okay. Um, that was. Did he see you rattle? I didn't rattle. I just grunted. Or um, okay. I, so I, I don't know, but I don't think you know. I, I wasn't making any dramatic moves. It was pretty subtle oh, yeah. movement, and I was facing the opposite direction from him. So I think gotcha. he just got startled by this really loud noise when he was right there, and um, wasn't feeling it. Gotcha. So that was uh, that was that night. The next morning, hunted a different spot and had a nice nine-pointer come in. I think uh, he could have been four. It was kind of hard to see his full body with how tall the brush was. Three or four, definitely. Maybe like a 130-class nine-pointer with like a really cool, big, kind of curving, bladed brow time. Yeah. Um, but I decided to pass on him, but got a cool encounter. I got to watch him for a long time. And that was that was the hunt. I hunted that night, didn't see anything but a doe, and headed back to Michigan um, which takes us to last night, which is the question mark incident. Right. I may have had a Holyfield encounter. Okay. How close was this encounter? 60 yards. Okay. But thick Were, Are you 100% positive it was him? I'm not 100% positive. I've gone down in confidence since the incident. Like every time I think about it, I'm like, uh, maybe not. So like when I first when it first happened, I'm like I'm 95% sure that was him. And then by like the next morning, I'm like, well maybe it was 90% sure it was him. And then tonight I'm like, eh, maybe 85% sure it was him. Um, so, so why don't you just tell like describe the encounter? Yeah. So here's what describe happened. Describe what you saw. Yep. So I'm hunting in um, one of my favorite sets. It's been there for a long time. It's been traditionally a good spot to be at this time of year. A little like quarter to half acre food plot. Um, tucked in between on one side is a really good bedding area and the other side is a narrow strip of corn that comes down and then another good bedding area just on the other side of that. And, um, so I'm sitting there, it's like four 30 or four 45 was pretty early in the evening. Um, and two does had come into the food plot and, uh, the way my wind was blowing, I was just cutting the corner of the food plot with my wind. Like, so if the deer were in 95% of the food plot, they couldn't catch my wind. But if they happened to go in the one very far bottom corner of it, they would possibly be in my wind. Well, these two deer went there, of course. And, um, so they're right downwind of me and they're just standing there. Fortunately, with all my scent control stuff, everything I'm doing, they, they didn't win me, but they knew something was up. So they're standing there and they're just, their nose is in the air. They're looking their nose, trying to figure out what's going on. So I'm looking at them and then... I'm like, oh, are they going to blow? Are they going to blow? Are they going to blow? And then I just happened to catch a glimpse of something out of the corner of my eye. So I turned my head, looked to the left, and across the food plot, 
maybe five yards inside of the timber, and it's it's very thick across this across the food plot. Inside the timber, I see a big buck like walking right towards me, like he's gonna come into the food plot. I'm like, holy crap! And like in the, I had like a second and a half where I'm looking at him, and like my mind said, that's Holyfield, like the basic frame. I was like, that's him. There's no other. I mean, there's no other bucks, big bucks in the area, but him. And like that's him, and he's walking right. In, he's like five yards away from the food plot, aimed right at me. So now I need to get my bow before he gets into the plot and you know, I can't move. So I, I spin slowly, grab the bow, and as I start to spin back, I looking, I'm looking at him again. But now instead of coming to the food plot, he's turned and he's parallel in the food plot. And I get like another two seconds of looking at him, and then he gets behind this thick cover and literally that's it. So I had like a second and a half when I saw him coming in, turning at the bow, and then by the time I turned back, I've got like two more seconds of a glimpse. And I remember the thing I was trying to figure out, the, tr- the thing I was trying to confirm, is whether his main beams curved up or curved down. Because there is a two and a half year old buck that I've been calling Droopy, that is like a mini me of Holyfield in a lot of ways, like what he, like what Holyfield looked like two years ago, except for his beams angled down at the end instead of curving up. Yeah. So I've seen this buck in the past. I'm like, oh, crap, is that Holyfield? Like for a split second. And then you're like, oh, no, it's not. Smaller beams go down. But so in this instance, I was trying to see as he's going through the cover. That's what I remember looking at. And I feel like in my head I remember seeing curved up. So that's why I feel pretty confident as him. But because it was such a brief encounter, I don't know. And so he gets behind this thick cover. And so my next thought is I, got, I need to grunt to him. I need to call him in. So I grab my grunt tube, and then I remember those two does. And I look over, and again, those two does are still standing at 25 or 30 yards or whatever with their noses in the air, still trying to figure things out. And I realize if I make a grunt right now, if I make some noise, that's going to spook these deer out of here. Like they're going to freak because they're already kind of on edge. And then if they hear a loud noise from 20 yards away, um, I'm going to blow those does out. So yeah. – I can't grunt. I can't make a call. So now I'm just hoping that they don't blow and that he is just coming in from a different angle and going to come into the plot. Well, he never did come into the plot, and I could never get eyes on him again. I thought he would walk across a clearing in the brush and I'd be able to see him again, but he never did. And I scoured, I scoured, and scoured it. That was it. That was the encounter. I mean, like three, four seconds, um, and he just disappeared like the ghost he is. Um, Yeah. And that was it. And then I, I saw, I did see, now this is another thing that made me wonder. Um, like an hour and a half later, I did see Droopy. I saw his mini-me chasing does. Now he came from a different direction. He came from the totally opposite side, but I did see Droopy later that night. Um, and then this morning I saw Droopy again, bumping around. He's all over the place. Yeah. Um, saw six box cruising around this morning, but no sign of Holyfield. But I do have news related to Holyfield still. Okay. This is new, even from when we started this podcast recording. Okay. I have a picture on my cell camera that just came through of Holyfield in my food plot about 45 minutes ago. So he's he's there right now. He's there right now, dude. <laughs> dude, that guy is going to tease the shit out of you, and he's going to prevent you. Oh, man. this You know, you know how I, I was obsessed with this buck called Shipwreck? Oh, yeah. And like you're kind of getting to that point now where you want to kill him so bad that you're like you almost have blinders on. Yes. I can't really like enjoy what's going on in Ohio or think about other things. It really has become an obsession. That is true. Because, you know, I would, you know, you're getting ready to potentially head out to uh, North Dakota to hunt as well. And you 
you don't even know if you're going to go now or not because it's, it's like this entire season's revolving around one deer. Yeah, and that's that's exactly the issue. Is like I want it. I've, I've got this North Dakota tag. I want to use it, but like we talked about earlier today, unless I kill Holyfield, I just don't. I can't leave. I can't. I need to be local. I need to be here to take advantage of something if something comes up. So yeah, it's uh, it is all consuming. It's kind of um, it's quite an adventure. He's been frustrating this year. He has not shown himself in daylight yet. So um, hopefully soon. That's going to change, man. That's going to change. Hopefully soon. Yeah. So just cross all my fingers and toes, trying to be smart about it, Um, trying to be careful but aggressive when I should be. Um, Tomorrow I've got a horrible wind for hunting this property, and I sat all tonight like trying to think, how can I hunt? How can I hunt with this wind? And – I ended up deciding I'm not going to hunt it at all. I'm going to go and run and gun some random public land rather than force the issue on a day that tomorrow it's going to be 60 degrees. It's going to be warm and it's going to be storming all day. Like I don't need to push it on a bad wind with those kind of conditions. Um, I'm going to get, let the property take a day off and then, um, then get back after him when this another little cold front comes through, I've got good winds then. And, um, hopefully the, the cards will finally be in my favor. So I'm pulling for you, bud. Well, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate everyone. I've, I, I gotta say it's been kind of cool. Um, so much support from our audience, from ever, from all you guys listening and following along on social media and, and all the different things that we're doing. So many people wishing me luck, sending words of support, talking about how they're following along. That's, that's awesome. I appreciate that. It's keeping me going strong, keeping me on point, And, uh, hopefully I will be able to, uh, have good news here soon. But uh, but for anybody who's been listening and they don't care about us at all, all they've wanted to hear is about Will Primos. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize that our uh, rambling has gone on for so long, but you now know a little bit about uh, <laughs> about my my hunt for Holyfield and Dan's kids. So there <laughs> <laughs> abracadabra. Yep. So next week will be an exciting podcast because Dan, you will be in the middle of your rutcation. And I will be hopefully doing some exciting things, so we'll have some good stories to share next week. Um, so for now, I say let's 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 stop our stories, let's pause to thank our partners at Sitka Gear, and then let's get Will Primos on the line. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Jem Caesar, who tells us why his 2017 archery season has been the most unique one yet. This year for the Louisiana 2017. Uh, archery season, I decided to make a big change to my arsenal. And that change being traditional archery gear, along with wearing sicker gear. Um, this year has been rather, rather different for me. I was in for a lot more treats whenever I made sits. Um, I've literally, every time I've gone to the stand, not five minutes later, there's a herd of, a herd of uh, wild hogs that comes out every time, no matter the time of the day. I can go into the stand at like 12 o'clock, and I kid you not, by 12.05, there'll be pigs coming in. And um, I've managed to get, I've managed to harvest four hawks so far using traditional gear. And um, it's just, it's just an amazing feeling being able to go out in the stand and almost knowing on public land that you're going to have opportunity at an animal. And uh, it just makes it that much better. And, um, it's just, it's just awesome. Uh, public land, as many know, is it's very, it's very hard hunting. Uh, it can be very rewarding, and sometimes you know it's just you get the raw end of the deal, and uh, you just go out and 
nothing happens. But this year, I can honestly say it makes me look forward to what's what's to come. On Gems Hunts, he's been wearing Sika's Equinox system. If you'd like to create a Sika story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right, with us now on the line is Will Primos. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be with y'all. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is one I've been looking forward to since uh, we were able to line it up. And i got to ask you right out, right out the gate, how is your hunting season going so far? Well, we start early because we chase so many elk. We usually are gone for about a month to six weeks, depending. Uh, and this year we started out in uh, early September and uh, went back. Some of the guys went back for rifle season in early October. But uh, So that starts the hunting season. It was a great elk season. Um, we just we love the West. We, we love that world and get to meet a lot of different people out there, get to see new places to hunt whitetails and the drainages and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I like that aspect of it too. Um, but we had a great, great season. And then deer season has gotten kicked off pretty good. I hunted uh, last uh, week before last, and I did not get a shot. I had uh, two deer that they were a little bit they were one of them was 200 and 225 yards away and one of them was 427 yards away i was hunting an old riverbed uh that used to be the mississippi river until it switched courses so it's a wide open area that has a slight slew going through it with very little trees growing in it and it's a lot of uh just just water vegetation and so forth where the river used to be but anyway we had we could see a long way from where we were sitting in a willow tree back from it a little bit one of the deer was 427 yards and they were both fully mature i couldn't decide if they were four and a half or five and a half but um both of them were fine fine bucks but of course that was way too far from my bow and uh, cameraman said why didn't you shoot at one of those deer i said man i didn't want to show off (laughs) (laughs) so so are you hunting locally over the coming weeks or are you traveling anywhere else to do some you know elsewhere mark all these years I've traveled the Midwest and gone everywhere from Montana, Idaho, you know, hunting, uh, hunting whitetails, uh, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, Texas. And I'm 65 years old and I'm real healthy and strong and exercise and good, but I've just gotten to where I don't like to travel. And I love the deep South whitetail hunting. I love what we call these just big old swamp donkeys that are so hard to figure out. You don't have the, noticeable funnels and things like that that you do in the midwest so we're sticking close and we lease uh, 11,000 acres on the mississippi river and it is in the corner of where louisiana meets arkansas so north louisiana and south arkansas and then the mississippi river changed courses so there's an island called sarah island it's not an actual island unless the water's way up and so we have land in all three states. We have all three licenses, and that's where we produce the Primo show primarily. There's every once in a while we'll go somewhere else in this area, but that is primarily where we do all of our whitetail hunting. So that's where we were hunting. And then last week they went back. I did not go last week. And uh, Troy Ruiz, who's part of the team on our show, he killed two nice bucks: one with his bow and one with a with a crossbow. With uh, Matthews has a new crossbow, it's pretty incredible, and he he used it um, in Mississippi. So he got two nice bucks. Brad Ferris killed a doe, 
Uh, he's part of the, our team, been, been a part of our team for a long, long time. So they're headed back over there today, and they'll be here this week. And I'm taking a couple of days off, for one, to be with you and, and your uh, your guest uh, on, on your show. Well, we certainly appreciate that. And, uh, and I want to talk about this topic of hunting in the Deep South and, you know, how different it is than, than the Midwest, like you mentioned. But I guess before that, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't at least get you to tell us a little bit of, of your history, Will, um, because I'm sure most people today are familiar with who you are and, and what you've done with Primos and everything, but maybe they don't know how that all happened. Could you give us, like, the Cliff Notes version of, of how this all came to be? Sure. Well, I, that's flattering. You say that knows everybody knows who I am or whatever. I don't know that that's the truth, but we have been doing this for 41 years. I started in 1976. Uh, I was born here in the Jackson, Mississippi area uh, to a, in a very extended, large family, grandfathers, grandparents, both sides, uh, uncles, and they all hunted and uh, hunting the Mississippi Delta for inflated timber for ducks and we, I grew up on a small farm, and uh, my family was in the restaurant business in Jackson. And this little small farm, we had a, a little lake, and I had all the small game you could chase a, a stick with, you know. So that's how I grew up, and I loved it. And I loved fishing. Uh, I had a little red rider wagon that I'd fill up with brim and bring them to the house and, and go to scale them. I loved them, fry it whole. So anyway, that was kind of my life, and uh, I, I just – I just love it. So I started making turkey calls early on, and um, people liked them a lot. They were different. And one thing led to another. I got out of college and went to work for the family, have a business degree, and uh, I started this little company on the side. Uh, I called it Primos Yelpers. A yelper, Y-E-L-P-E-R, a yelper is a turkey mouth call. And uh, so I started doing that and going to shows, and I'd sell out, and I'd go home and make more. And one thing led to another, and long i said did come and i got i think i had by that time i had you know 12 or 15 products and things were going great it was a timing deal i couldn't do it i don't think you could do it today (laughs) packaging so much more sophisticated in the the digital world of doing business is so much more sophisticated you really have to have some startup funds to to get it going but at any rate um things grew and grew and in 19 in 2006 um jimmy primos my cousin had come in to help me run the place he was the chief operating officer. We had seven vice presidents that ran different departments within the company. At that time, we had about 160 employees, I think it was. But we sold to a private equity firm out of Chicago. I sold 95% of it. And um, then we, I stayed on as, as uh, the head of it, and Jimmy was the chief operating officer, and all the executives stayed. And uh, we grew it, doubled it, and sold it to Bushnell um, in 2012. And then in 2013, ATK, which was uh, Applied Tech Systems, um, which is a publicly traded company that that owned Federal Premium and CCI, as well as a lot of other outdoor brands, as well as they were in the business of putting rockets into orbit, uh, they bought Bushnell. So we became a part of that family. And then ATK split, and they made a publicly traded separate um, uh, outdoor sporting products division and the rocket business putting rockets in orbit and government contract side of things went to a company called orbital so v-i-s-t-a vista was born we are part of the vista brand of products now uh, primos uh, actually the guy who came to primos from south carolina mike powell 
actually runs Primo's on a day-to-day basis now. I'm still there uh, um, anytime I want to be in many days every day. But um, so is Jimmy. But uh, <clears throat> he actually runs Primo's. Mike Powell does. And he also we also own and run Gold Tip Arrows, uh, Bee Stinger uh, Stabilizers, uh, Final Approach uh, Decoys and water, Waterfowl Products. Uh, double bull blinds, uh, primos, and Bushnell cameras are all under Mike's watch and our watch. So we're developing those products and putting new products out. We have a full new product development team and so forth. So that brings us kind of to today and, and where we are. Now my main role is a public relations role, uh, being in advertisers, being on uh, camera, hunting, uh, representing the company, uh, Primo's Truth About Hunting on uh, on the outdoor channel started in 1999 and it rates every month between one and five in the last three months it's been number one uh, on the outdoor channel as far as outdoor program programming goes wow. so we're proud of that but we're kind of amazed by it because um, we've been there so long and it's easy to get stale mm-hmm. uh, we got stale at one time and didn't do as well that's kind of come around but we love whitetail hunting um, we do it and we live and breathe it year-round um, so maybe that's a little more than you wanted. That kind of gets you up to speed to yeah. where we are. No, it's, it's it's an incredible story, and I just can't I can't imagine. Well, could could you have imagined when you were first making those Primos Yelpers that that you know so many years later you would be standing here today, you know, working with all of these brands and um, you know in such a different place? It's it's an incredible journey. I have to imagine. Yeah, it is an incredible journey, and you bring a huge smile to my face when you ask me that question because I can remember those early days and I can remember the struggles and the sacrifices um, it's quite amazing uh, to be where we are but can I did, I did I imagine it I imagined having a strong viral uh, game call company that for sure and um, somebody said to me one time don't ever underestimate passion and, and Somebody asked, uh, it, was, it was talking about Charles Corralt, and I don't know how many of our listeners know who Charles Corralt was, but he was on the road at CBS for years. And they asked the, the cameraman who's still living that worked with Charles Corralt while he was on the road, they said, did, did, why did people try to call Charles Corralt out of doing this? When he had the idea, uh, why, why, did, why did they try to talk him out of it? Because that's a known thing that, people, that CBS didn't believe that this on-the-road show would work. And the guy said, well, I guess he knew something they didn't know. <laughs> so, you know, you know what you know, but for those of us who are passionate uh, about a product or, or about a product line or an ideal, um, you know, that, that's something to be reckoned with. Uh, and there's many great business principles. Uh, I have a major in business and I love business. And uh, I guess all that kind of came together to, to help us channel that passion into something that we truly loved uh, and to be able to have the energy uh, to do it, to run a business and hunt. (laughs) It takes a lot to hunt. We're serious about it, so it takes a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think this this idea of of having that passion and how you can use that passion to be successful in business, that, that perfectly translates to the woods as well because I think if you look at some of those core, you know, common threads that run between you know those people who maybe are the most consistently successful hunters they all have that shared passion um no doubt about they that do. i think and and i will say this about those consistent hunters 
that consistently killing mature big white tails uh, on a regular basis, year in, year out, and done it for years. There's many of them out there, and I, my, my, I love those guys. But there's there's one thing that they do that the average guy doesn't do, and that is that they respect the whitetail. Most everyday weekend hunters that want to be successful do not respect the whitetail enough. His nose and his ears are absolutely incredible and you can't you can't just be blasting up in the woods and expect one of these big guys to give himself up it just ain't gonna happen <laughs> very true so so when you say respect the whitetail it sounds like we're talking about just really respecting and understanding and accounting for just how wary and 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 what survival experts mature bucks are right is there is there anything more well, you know, there, you can get down to that. You can break it down into all aspects of entering the woods, being in the woods, leaving the woods. Uh, all that adds to not letting them know you're there because you can't let them know you're there. Uh, and, and it kind of goes like this. You cannot hunt a whitetail where he is. Now, that one exception is that is that if he's bedded and you got the wind on him, you're able to see him or see his horns in a field or CRP field or whatever and stalk him and get within bow range and shoot him. And I'm talking about bow hunting here. But you can't typically hunt a whitetail where he is. You've got to hunt him where he's going to be. And you've got to get to where he's going to be without him ever knowing you're there or detecting you while he comes. So it, it, that, I hope that answers what you're trying to get at in respecting a whitetail. Yeah. They truly are. And, and I, I think it was um, – oh, gosh, my mind just went blank. One of the guys – uh, they had early October whitetails video that back in the, um, the one, one, back the one, in the eighties. The Wenzels? Yeah, the Wenzels. I believe one of them said, I think it was Barry, um, that he said, when all said and done, there's no living, very few living creatures on earth. The third to the last will be a whitetail. The second to the last will be a, a, a coyote. And the last will be a roach. <laughs> and just it just tells you how incredible those three animals are yeah um because they're survivalist and and to understand a white tail and what he needs and to make him happy by being happy what relaxes him and that's cover and that's being able to enter that cover and get and, and leave that cover undetected uh understanding his food sources understanding how he goes about his daily activities it's all it's all an incredible puzzle Yes, and, and I think that's what draws us back to it year after year after year. Um, now, now, speaking of all of these things that make a whitetail such a survival expert, how does a southern whitetail differ than maybe the ones that you see on TV most of the time up in the Midwest um, or, or like where I'm in Ohio right now or, or wherever that might yeah, be? Yeah, yeah. well, years ago, Miles Keller came down here to hunt with a friend of mine. And he looked at this forest. He was hunting in the hills south of Vicksburg, Mississippi, which is not far from the Mississippi, but they're called Lois Hills, L-O-E-S-S, I believe is what he said. And that's wind-blown dirt, wind-blown dust that made the hills south of Vicksburg. And he got there, and he looked at this, and he goes, oh, my gosh, how do you ever kill a whitetail? Because it's tens of thousands of acres of woods there's no 
funnels. There's no big plateau grassland plateau tops and and a bench that leads down a drainage that allows that show that that's the funnels. I've hunted those that country that that Midwest country, and oh, how much fun it is to find <laughs> one of those funnels! Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, you just have to. Be. The biggest problem with those is, is you're going to see us. You're going to see bucks. You're going to see. You're probably going to see some deer, and you've got to let the little ones go if you want to kill a big one. <laughs> yeah. That's the Because <laughs> when those those three and a half year, 145, 150 each deer come by, you're going, oh, that's the biggest deer I've ever had a chance to shoot at. I ain't passing that up. <laughs> but if you if you will, lo and behold, you know, booners might come by. You know, mm-hmm. so so the so honey in the south. You, you, Brad Ferris, who's ran the Primo's uh, TV and video department for years, and still is part of the show. Um, he he is incredible at being able to look at that kind of country and figure it out. We call them buck vines, but buck vines, vegetation, different stuff can be a funnel to a whitetail in this part of the country. And you're hunting food sources a lot this time of year. You got persimmons. You got honey locusts. Um, these are some of the foods. And then we have native pecans. Native pecan is about uh, two or three times as big as the small nail on your little finger. They're real little. They're full of oil. And they are the redwood to me. They are the redwood of the Mississippi River as, as the redwood is to California. Hmm. They are huge. When they get to be 80, 100 years old, they're as big around as a pickup truck and so tall and straight. It's just incredible. And they're wow. unbelievable producers of mass. The, the number of, of pecans in those trees is crazy. So we had a big windstorm come by last week. And it just, on the river, there's just, it's, it's, but the, the dominant tree is the native pecan. And so there's just mass on the ground everywhere. And it really changes the pattern because they don't have to go very far to get food. Uh, the water sources, you've got the river they can feed in, you've got sloughs, so it's really hard to hunt water sources. So you got to find out where the thick areas are, and you make some of those you know, in time and while, you're, while you're dealing with your property. But they're going to be in those thick areas. And we like to go in and provide a, 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 a way to hunt them. Like we'll go in there and we'll make a thick area, like say a three to five acre, I mean a cutover. And we keep it that way. We'll go in there and hack and squirt and poison to keep it. We don't want it growing back up in big trees. And we, but for the dominant wind that we have, which is going to be a southerly or northerly in nature, but southerly when the southerly flows are coming out of the Gulf and northerly northwest when the winds are coming in from the north and the fronts came through, like just happened. We're going to go in there and we're going to make a small food plot, usually in an hourglass shape. And we're going to grind the stumps and we're going to make that food plot, and it's going to have a lot of cover next to it except for where we enter on the downwind side. And you got to enter from the downwind side. You can't come in from the other direction, or they're going to smell you. They may get up and leave, or they may just lay there. They just they know you're there. Uh, a whitetail can tell by smelling you how close you are, whether you're 20 yards away or whether you're 50 yards away or a quarter mile away. They 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 It's an intensity, and they, they're, that, they're that good at it. Um, so we, we build that to enable us to hunt a food source for early season. And then you typically know what we call ridges. Believe it or not, we've got ridges on the Mississippi River. Some of them may be six inches elevation in height. I remember the, fir- for, I remember the first time a guy 
from uh, up up there came up, up in your part of the country came hunting with me at my farm and um i was saying we just walk until you until you get to you see the ridge and I, I wasn't thinking you know i said watch you see the ridge then walk down the ridge and you'll see the stand right there on the edge of the ridge and so i came back he said well, i finally found the stand about an hour after it got daylight i said do what and he goes there was no ridge <laughs> so i walked him in there and showed him the ridge and says this is a ridge <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it's a six-inch elevation, and the deer will walk that. It may, it may be 10 yards wide or 20 yards wide. It's how the river, the Mississippi River and the Mississippi Libyal floodplains before the levees were built on the Mississippi River and all that came in and moved the water and built up sediment and, and caused these depressions, sloughs, or oxbow lakes off of other rivers or ridges. <laughs> and you learn you learn the finite details. and. A southern hunter can more quickly find the nuances of the stuff in the Midwest, I think. Because when we go, we're looking at it with a different attitude. We're not looking for what the, the big blinking neon light. We're looking for those teeny tiny subtle sounds, su- subtle sights and, mm-hmm. and terrain features that uh, will guide a whitetail to, to your, what we call a tree. We, we would develop in Iowa. We leased land for quite a few years. and. We had, I don't know, we had three or four, we called them killing trees, and we never moved the sand. They were killing trees. I'm sure you, you've got some of those in mm-hmm. your part of the world. Mm-hmm. Can, can you elaborate a little bit on, um, for, the, for the southern deer hunter, those, those nuanced little features or whatever it might be, whether it's terrain or cover or, or something else, can you elaborate on some of those things that you've found do funnel deer or, or help you better choose where understand where these deer might be moving yeah in general deer are lazy um when they're moving they're relaxed or moving and so to get down on their chest and go under something like a barbed wire fence if they're entering a field or something i mean they'll do that but if they're just walking through the woods they're not typically going to do that so you're looking for treetops and you're looking for the uh, wind may have come down and blown down several trees and you start paying attention to how that forms so to speak a fence um jack fences in the midwest for us were a big uh guide for deer uh jack fences uh fences put up typically because the ground's got too much rocks in it you can't put a post in the ground you don't want to use t-posts that's even can be difficult so they're they're leaning fences made out of saplings as big as your calf say or maybe a touch bigger and they're they're forming a uh, teepee look and then you have cross members uh, that keep cattle or livestock uh, or whatever in a certain area horses uh, and so these are great guiders guide, guidance to uh, the whitetail and we would look at those to kind of determine how the deer will travel and then of course you find their trails if they're using them a lot but in the south you're looking for treetops you're looking for cane thickets you're looking for buck vines um you're you're looking for stuff that's so thick that a deer can stay hidden until he gets to an open area so you start walking the edge of that thick stuff it could be johnson grass it, it could be goldenrod um i mean some of the stuff would be six eight feet tall you cannot see the deer in there and you can't see him until he gets to the open spot so you you go to the open spot and you 
you you walk it looking for any trails where they may be repetitively using a trail to get to uh, the mass trees or or to an agricultural area or to a water a watering area you just got to really pay attention and not look for the obvious look for the things that aren't obvious mm-hmm. you mentioned buck vines can you what's a what what are buck vines maybe i'm just ignorant because i haven't been down in that part of the country yeah yeah buck vines may be as big as your wrist and they will grow uh on these big huge pecans and and on sycamores and cottonwoods down in the south along the river and other places and you get so many of them they're like a tangle um and they're, they, they and then they come loose from the tree, and you can imagine Tarzan swinging from tree to tree on them. Uh, that's kind of what they look like. But they can form a a wall of sorts in the woods, and it might not be more than a fifty yard wall or a twenty yard wall, but they will hit that and go down it, and then go to the next. And so you're looking for things like that that help you determine the movement of a whitetail. And then hunting a, a place in the rut is another deal. Deer typically rut, um, and they'll show up in an area that, that typically you, you wouldn't see him. And all of a sudden, dang it, he showed up last November at this time, and here he is again. Where has he been? We don't have him on camera. We have, Nobody's seen him. So I think they're just nocturnal as all get out uh, and living in thick areas, and they move at night until it gets closer to the rut. Speaking of uh, speaking of of trail cameras and and you know sometimes figuring out these bucks might be nocturnal and trying to figure them out, um, you know in the Midwest when you know typically we're trying to pattern a buck or something right it's these kind of stereotypical usual ways that guys do it they they got a trail camera on a scrape on a field edge or on a food plot and they just figure out is he coming from this block of timber or that block of timber or whatever it might be um it seems like it must be a lot more difficult to try to pattern a mature buck in your neck of the woods given the the diversity in terrain and cover the extent of cover um are you are you using kind of similar tactics with trail cameras and and basically you know patterning them off of that those types of things or is there something different you guys are doing? Yes, you can. Now, uh, summer salt licks have been a a, a real plus for us. Um, they use them so regularly, and then you start you get these pictures of these velvet bucks. Um, one deer in particular, I'm thinking about. Um, I, we named him Eric after a friend of mine who was actually publisher of uh, Outdoor Life and Field and Stream at the time, he was the first person to ever see Eric on the hoof. We, we had pictures of him, but we, we'd never seen him on the hoof. And he was a three-and-a-half-year-old, but he was a 160-inch three-and-a-half-year-old. Wow. And um, this, this is a really, a, a really, really, that's an estimate. I don't know how big he was. He might have been 155, but he was 160-class deer. And he, he was just a, a great eight point. Um, so he was on my farm. I've sold my farm, but my farm was fairly large. And he moved a mile away. And we didn't know it. We were hunting another spot. And he came out of a planted CRP field, which was very, very thick. We had taken a cotton field and put it back into CRP. And he walked out about 100 yards away down the lane. We were looking down. We were bow hunting. And he walked out 
and we had a, a doe that had already come out from where he was, and he was fixing to walk right in front of us. And when he stepped out, we went, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to make a decision to kill him or not because he's three and a half. And um, he turned and went the other way. And so then we got to thinking, my gosh, he's a mile from where he was. He's no, he's, 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 we wondered what happened to him. So we started putting up trail cameras, and we got pictures of him. We decided to pass on him. The next summer, we start, we put on a salt lick that was was outside the CRP field, but not more than about 50 yards in the big woods. We put a trail camera on that salt lick and started getting pictures of him there regularly. And I'm, I'm estimating he's 175 to 85 inch deer this year wow. in, in velvet. I mean, he's, and he's a nine point. He's got a split brow and um, he's just massive. Matter of fact, you can, you can see that hunt. Uh, it's on YouTube somewhere. You go to, I think you go to um, Mrs. Will Primo's P-R-I-M-O-S, Will Primo's Mississippi Big Buck. Why we titled it that, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know why, but I'm <laughs> get, get more views. But anyway, you can actually see the actual hunt because it's on video. So we figured he was living in the CRP field, and we had to have uh, a wind that had some north and uh, some east, a slight bit of east in it to be able to hunt him there, if I remember correctly. It's been, been a while. Um, at any rate, we got on the edge of that field, and we got about 100 yards from the salt lick, and he was coming through there, moving from the one going to the Salt Lake anymore. But we had pictures of him on the edge of that CRP field coming out of it, moving through right at dusk. And um, he showed up, and he was you know out in front of us, and he I, could, I couldn't believe it. And then he turned around like he's like he's like he smelled something or he thought of something, and he turned around. I'm sorry, the wind was northwest. That'd be northwest. Remember now, and he turned around and headed in a southwest direction like you know and i was just like deflated and th there's an opportunity we hadn't talked about it yet but colin yeah. so the cameraman johnny st Clair's a uh, guy who ran the farm for me great guy he's, he's running the camera i'm hunting and he could still see his horns and he's higher than me because he's in a stand higher than me and i couldn't see him he could still see the tops of his horns he says call to him call to him and so i got out of my can and bleated and he said, he stopped, run at him, run at him. You know, so I grunted at him, and he said, he's not moving. So I wheezed at him, and it wasn't very long at all. I thought he was gone. He wasn't coming. All of a sudden, he's in front of us, and I was able to kill him. Wow. And um, if it wasn't for the cameras, and we, we actually had like eight cameras surrounding where we thought he was living, but we wouldn't go into that, that CRP field, of course. Um, but you, you so that's a good example of you cannot go into what people call their core area. You got to let him be there, let him be happy. Don't go to that area if the wind's at your back. Never let him know you're even looking for him, and put out those cameras, and then use that that surveillance to kind of tell you where to place your stand. Of course, every what makes what makes it so cool is every one of these things is different. Every whitetail is different. Every hunt is different. Every scenario is different. Every terrain, landscape, the, the habitat, the thickness of it, the openness of it, all of that's different. And so you have to take all that information and start trying to put your puzzle together. But yeah. the big thing is, is to respect them. Do not let him know you exist. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you do that and you're changing the game. All right, let's take a quick break here for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Jason Ziegler, a land specialist out of Minnesota. And Jason is going to be talking to us about how to hunt an active farm during the rut. Well, one of the biggest things is is timing. You know, a lot of the, a lot of times the farmers are in the fields harvesting the corn at either the peak of the pre-rut or right at the beginning of the rut, and that can really trigger deer movement inside of the timber. You you got to figure a lot of the deer that are living on these farms or in the ag fields, specifically standing corn, that's great cover for them. And the farmers out there taking them off, you want to be in the woods to catch some of that rutting activity. You're driving all of the deer now into a specific area versus a vast flat land of, of corn. So that's one of the things that I trigger on is get inside the timber, hunt the ridges, hunt the, the points and the fingers. The majority of the deer are going to be in that timber and coinciding with the rut, perfect timing to uh, maybe catch that bruiser buck that you've been looking for on a doe moving back and forth between what the farmers are doing and what you're doing. So that's one of the biggest things is to key in on the timber and get out there while they're harvesting the corn. Another key factor is to look at your food plots. Your food plots are going to light up like a Christmas tree. Once the farmer gets the ag ground off or the, their crops off the fields, those, food, those deer are going to really key on those food plots. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Jason currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Ziegler. That's Z-I-E-G-L-E-R. Now, yeah, now, now there's one exception to that rule, though, I, 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 I think, which is when you are doing what you just mentioned there, which is calling to them. So you do want them to know you're there, but uh, you just want them to think oh, there's no, no. something yeah, different, yeah, yeah. right? If you're, trying, <laughs> if you're trying to kill him and you've got him there, no doubt. That exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about don't let him know you're there while you're scouting. Yeah, yeah. Let me put that in there. That's what I mean. While you're trying to get your stand in place and while you're trying to figure out how to hunt him, don't let him know you're looking for him. Don't know you're don't don't let him hear you or smell you. Yeah. Now now Definitely. let's let's fast forward though to that hunting situation though. As you mentioned, you were able to call this buck in. Um let's talk about calling a little bit. Obviously you are you are one of the um foremost experts on this topic, given the fact that you kind of invented the category in a lot of ways. Could you kind of walk <laughs> us through could you walk us through the different calls that you like to use? Um, and then what the proper like scenario would be to use those and other considerations that might be on your mind when going through yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Well, number one, I didn't invent it all. There's so many great hunters who have believed in calls and have added to it. Uh, down south, we used to hunt only with dogs, and you'd let dogs loose and run them across the swamp. They didn't have a lot of deer. But then as we got more deer and people wanted to still hunt them and wanted to see deer being deer, that's when calling really became an advantage. Um Number one, the problem for most hunters is even people that hunt a lot, they haven't heard all these sounds. Uh, I did a lot of my research and, and my designs and sounds that I was trying to make by by being around pinned deer uh, or around pet deer, uh, listening to them, listening to their wheezes and listening to what they did. I had a friend out of South Mississippi that had a beautiful buck um, in, a, in about a 20-acre enclosure that they raised as a fawn. Um, and they didn't want to let it get away, so they put it in that little enclosure. And that deer, during the rut, he would see you as competition. You walk up that fence, and he'd, <laughs> he'd, he'd turn it on, and 
his lips would go back and his hair would go and he and he'd slam that fence trying to get to you Jeez. Uh, even though he was he loved you when it wasn't the rut you know let you pet him and all that kind of stuff but the the can is usually the first sound that i'm producing every deer knows what that means and during the rut uh, i got a can here in my hand but that sound is the sound of a doe that is in stress in estrus she's calling for the attention of a buck or she's almost like she's crying that she's she's in, she's they're under tremendous stress at that time when they're when they're ready for a buck to breed them and if the, they're not with a buck they want they want a buck to know that and that's speculation on my part because i don't think they think like humans but they're they're going through what god has built into them the instinctive things that they be able to do to to be able to procreate and to get the species a new generation of, of the species going so the doe will do that and then if there's a buck nearby uh and he sees another buck anywhere clear close by he's going to grunt at him he's going to let him know stay away and that grunt can be simple just just stay away and if that other buck makes an approach to that buck and doe then he's going to roar at him and a roar is a sound that one buck makes to another buck that he is fixing to fight he's 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 telling him stay away and that is a very very aggressive uh loud extended (laughs) grunt this is it's a roar and if that buck continues to make advances the last thing he's going to do before he lowers his head and slams into him is a wheeze. Now, I did that on our buck roar, which is my favorite call that we make. The rut roar is good as well, but uh, the buck roar is my favorite. Now, the, the, the wheeze is the last, the last deal. And, and the, what, what you need to know about those sounds is, is that the bleep is the lowest, it carries the, the least, it's a low sound. It's only so loud. It only carries so far. Then uh, the roar carries the furthest. And the wheeze I mean, the carries further than the bleat. And the wheeze carries the furthest because it's a high-pitched sound, and it travels through the wavelengths will travel further. So if you see a buck, and let's say he's 150 yards away, you got a little wind going on, and you can tell he's dogging these He's, he's trying to pick up the scent of a, of a, of a, of a doe. He's putting his head down, picking it up, putting his head down, picking it up. He's, just, he's kind of sniffing the ground, picking his nose up, sniffing. He's trying to get the scent of a doe. And you, you bleed at him, and you go. If he doesn't, if he hears you, he's going to stop and look, and you'll know it. Next sound, the sound you want to do is. And he's liable to start marching you away. If he doesn't. Then and he he turn he doesn't turn to you he, he heard you but he starts walking away wheeze at him that's the challenge and that he, what you're saying by making all those sounds to that buck is hey there's a hot doe over here and there's a buck over here and he's telling you to stay away or he's telling another buck to stay away that might be even closer and that buck will come in to see if he can get in on the action but let's just say you're in a stand and you haven't seen anything you're hunting near a cut over you the deer have been coming out of that cut over it's 30 minutes before dark, you hadn't seen anything yet, turn the can over twice. Wait a minute. Grunt. Wait a minute. Wait. 
30 seconds. Roar. And then 30 seconds later, 10 seconds later. And I, he's going to stand up. A good chance he's going to stand up. I would say for me, it probably works. I, I pick when I'm going to do it, but I'm going to say it probably works for me 15% of the time. That's pretty high percentage rates when you ain't seeing nothing. Yeah. And he comes in looking. Now, you want to have the wind in your favor. A lot of times when he gets mm, 30, 40, 50 yards, he'll start circling downwind. Now, hopefully, he's going to come within bow range of you, and you're going to be able to make that shot. But that's just a couple of the calling scenarios. And it's very typical of what I did when I killed Eric. Um, by the way, Eric scored 182. Didn't wow. tell you that. Jeez. That's gross. That's gross score by official score. And his mass is just, oh, gosh, the pictures <laughs> of him are just, oh, he's so, he took an incredible picture uh, just because he's just such, such, got such mass. Oh, I can't imagine. Um, he just always, oh, always oh, pretty. You have to look him up. He's pretty. He's a pretty buff. I will. I will for sure. Now, what about uh, region regionality? Does does do the aggressive types of calls that we're talking about here, doing a lot of these snort wheezes or buck roars, is that going to be just as effective in Louisiana or Arkansas as it is in Iowa or Kansas, or do we need to kind of temper things based on your location or hunting pressure or other things like that? I don't. You know if. Everybody in the woods is doing it. You're going to have hunting pressure, and you know it's going to be that's, that's not like, not good. But it's usually not the case with the whitetail. But I would not regionalize it as much as I would say the better areas that have mature bucks and or a managed herd, so there's more bucks. There, there's not too many does, in other words. You've got to manage. You've got to. A three to one ratio is great. A uh, three dose to one buck. A two to ones can be even better. But anytime you've got age classes of your your seven and a half to six and a half year old, five and a half, four and a half year olds, you've got your three and a half year olds, your two and a half year olds, and you've got your does. Anytime you've got all age classes, calling can work great because there's competitiveness. So if you if you've got in a, a situation in your state, in your area, in your hunting club, in your public land area where it's a, a, a competitive for the animals, your calling is going to be more effective. That makes sense. Now, now, where does rattling fit into your calling tactics? Does that fit into this whole sequence you mentioned? Or it, it, Yes. If, if I've done all, everything, you know, rattling carries pretty good. And if I've done everything, um, like calling, I haven't seen anything, and I've waited, you know, 25, 30 minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll try to rattle. And if I see a deer way off, I can try to rattle. And I've had some great success rattling. Um, I'm going to say I've been successful rattling five, five to almost 10% of the time that I've, that I've tried it. Not always a big buck. Um, but I don't rattle long. Um, that's my style. You can one of the things that's so hard to duplicate in a rattling situation, if you've ever seen bucks fight, a lot of times people see them fight in fields, edge fields and stuff like that. But if they're fighting in the woods, if you're in the woods and you're, 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 you're fighting, you're going to hear pushing, shoving, and a lot of quiet. You're not going to hear the, the horns all the time because they lock up, and then it's a pushing match. So you're hearing 
dirt moving ground moving limbs being shaken limbs breaking saplings bending over um you're, you're hearing a, 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 a different sounds other than just horns rattling so if i rattle and i've got some horns i will just and then be quiet for a minute a lot of times that's all the fight there will be because somebody, one of those deer, is going to establish authority and strength pretty quick, <laughs> and then he's going to he's going to turn and get the heck out of there because he doesn't want to get his butt slammed anymore. And other deer in the area become curious, and then so wait, you know, five to ten minutes and and wheeze, wait five to ten minutes, and or grunt or roar. Any time you've got the wind in your favor, especially if you're on the edge of a field. Perfect scenario is if you've got a bench and you've got a, a low field along a river bottom, you got a bench and deer are walking the bench and they've got to come by you to get to that field and you do this calling sequence, there's a good chance you'll entice a deer to come see what all is going on. Yeah, it's uh it's a scenario that I feel like plays out many, many times each fall, and, and it's kind of that thing you dream of, too, where you, you imagine sitting there, and it's been a slow day, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to try some calls, and then you see that set of antlers come pushing out of the grass ahead of you just after you snort, snort wheezed or something. I mean, that's oh, that's it right you there. You me going now. <laughs> <laughs> I just actually grunted. I told you before we uh, record, were recording, but I actually grunted in a nice buck uh, this morning, actually, that kind of deal. Um, gave him a couple kind of contact grunts. I didn't get to the point where I had to roar or anything. But Did, uh, you, did you see him first? The, yes. In this case, I did yeah. see him first. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And, yeah. And, I, and the way I kind of go about things, if I see him first, I start kind of at the bottom, like you said, and then we'll work my way up if I need to. Um, but mm-hmm. all I needed was that mm-hmm. was that contact grunt. Um, now, how about timing? For me, at least, with a lot of these types of calls, I'm not really active with my calls or rattling or anything until that pre-rut or rut time frame. Is that the same thing you're doing, or, or do you get aggressive no like this? Okay. No doubt. I mean, it's almost like the deer speak English, and if you're doing all this aggressive calling before the pre-rut starts, you're speaking Spanish, and they don't <laughs> know what it is. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it it's totally totally changes everything but now when you talk about timing that makes my mind go to something years in 19 my early 70s i made my first bow vest and what i what i wanted i wanted something that when i pulled my bow back there would my string would have nothing in the way my coat wouldn't be bulged out for hunting cold weather i wanted to pull my stuff in and kind of make sure my string wasn't going to catch my a, a zipper or button on my coat whatever um i wanted to also later on as i got these calls more developed and whatever i wanted to be able to access my can call without looking for it and i wanted because timing's everything you see a buck coming through he's 80 yards away walking through the woods and he's fixing to walk by a big oak and you want to be able to call to him when his head passes behind that oak you don't want him to be able to stop and turn and look exactly where you're calling from you don't want to give away your exact location because he's going to pinpoint it anyway, but you don't want him to be able to see where it is. Yeah. So I've got this gusted pocket on my right side. I'm right-handed, so I'm pushing my bow with my left hand. And I can reach in and grab my can, never look for it. Pocket's open, turn it over, man, put it up. 
without ever looking for it or looking for the pocket. And I, I, it's got a, a place to tuck the grunt collar in the front if you want to wear it on a lanyard. I wear mine on my on my right wrist so that I can lift my arm, which is already going to be close to my string anyway. And it's also got a loop that I put the cam of the bow in to hold the bow up. So if I got to wait for this deer to approach or he's feeding on acres coming my way and I got to watch him for a long time for, you know, 10 minutes, I don't want all that weight on my, my bow arm and tire my arm out. So I, I have that little, little pouch there, that little loop there that holds my bow up at the right height, but it doesn't tire my arm. So I'm real big on every stinking detail you could think of. The inside of the vest, I have places to store releases, uh, arm guard. I don't need an arm guard, but when you put on a lot of winter clothes, even though you shoot a bent arm and you shoot a, a quarter handle, and you're pushing that bow correctly, you got great form, your clothes can get in the way of that string, depending on your brace height. The shorter the brace height, the, you know, the closer it's going to come to your arm. And I wear an arm guard, so I keep that right there. I got a mask. I don't always wear a mask. Uh, but there's sometimes when I don't have a lot of cover and I'm in a tree, I just I just don't want my face shining. And uh, so this bow vest, if I if I get my bow vest and put it on, I ain't forgetting nothing. And it's all it's all there. Um, so it's a it's a pretty good cool deal because I I swear by the details. Mm-hmm. And it's when that little micro opportunity comes your way, if you don't take advantage of it, you're liable not to get it another chance. Yeah, yeah, I, I 150% agree, and it's there's so many variables outside of our control as deer hunters, right? I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many things outside of our control. I just so firmly believe that we have to control all those variables that we do have some type of say over, and it's those it's those right. little tiny details. So, so back to and timing. So, mm, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, um, back to timing. I was gonna kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, you mentioned how important timing was in regards to, you know, calling at the right moment, you know, when the buck's not looking your way or something, um, or the time of year, making sure it's in the pre-rut or, or rut. So we're talking English, not Spanish. Um, yeah. What about uh, just the rut in general? And I kind of want to shift away from calling, move over to talking about the rut. And first, I guess, how, how do people in the South experience the rut differently than we do here up where I'm at. Um, I've heard a lot of different things about kind of wonky timing and all sorts of stuff like that. How was the, how was the rut different down there? Well, when I've hunted the Midwest, um, there were days when I was so excited to be there and I would not see a deer. And then I'd go back to our little house we rented, uh, there in Iowa and there's a big old buck laid down at the fence in the backyard with a doe about eight yards from her laying there. Well, no wonder I wasn't seeing nothing. I mean, they were locked up, and he, she was close to being bred, and he wasn't leaving her. And if she moved, he moved. But if she moved, he's going to put her back down because he don't want her moving because when she moves – the dead gum other bucks find her. And then he's got to fight. Then he's got to deal with that. So it's all about those big bucks finding those does and keeping them down. When you don't have a whole, when you got a good balanced herd, you know, at some point, just about every buck's got a doe, you know, hot, you know, bedded down. So in the South, it's, it's a lot of the same. Um, 
it's all about dough movement. So the rut to me is figuring out where they want to be and hopefully them not going into lockdown. Uh, now, we've hunted eastern Colorado near Cheyenne Wells, which is hundreds of thousands of acres of grain and, and CRP fields. And th- how much fun is that? Because you ride around in a vehicle with spotting scopes and you're finding deer walking and bedding down first light uh, from a mile away, half a mile away, and you're able to watch a buck bed up with a doe, and then you're able to get the wind on them and make a stalk that may take two or three hours. And, God, you talk about adrenaline field. But during that strength of the rut, when they're all locked down, you can find them there. The problem is no different where y'all hunt in the Midwest and where we hunt here. Once they get locked down, uh, it's about, it's all about the doe. She's got to move or he's got to let her move uh, to be able uh, to do anything because you can't hunt a buck where he is. You got to hunt him where he's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the timing of the rut? There's so many different little pockets of of unique timing for the rut in various locations across the south. Have you ever found a good explanation for why that is or how to keep tabs on all of that down there? Well, when you've got a balanced herd, and let's say let's say if you've got a three to the, three doe to one buck ratio or less, you got a balanced herd, and you have a mature class ages of bucks from six and a half, seven and a half on down. You've got the classes of bucks. You've got this balanced herd. The rut in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, Central Mississippi North, is going to start. The pre-rut is going to start just right at the day after Thanksgiving, a couple of days after Thanksgiving, every year. And then, uh, as as you get on into the uh, you know into December, by December, you know the tenth, it's liable to be full bore. Um, I've hunted in those areas not balanced, and they don't even seem to rut. Because there's there's too many does. I don't know. I'm not. I mean, they've got studies. Mississippi State has done an incredible job of of studying whitetails and and understanding their behavior and understanding their mating times and so forth. So the rut's going on. It's just not evident to us because the herd's not bouncing. They don't have to work hard to go find a doe. Uh, they don't have to move very much. Um, but typically. It has to, from my, in my mind and what I've learned, it has to do with how balanced the herd is, is when you're going to have the rut. And if it's a balanced deal, it's going to start shortly after Thanksgiving for the pre-rut. Interesting. All right. Now, let- As a matter of fact, matter, matter of fact that, uh, that Eric deer I was talking about, um, I, I want to say I killed him the day after Thanksgiving. I got like, the day, day or a couple of days after Thanksgiving, some, somewhere right in there. And it was it was pre rut. You can tell he was pre rutting. He he was he was he was on the prowl, and he was responding to calls. Interesting. And that's in that's in the heart of Mississippi. So so okay, the rut. Well, right now as this podcast is first being launched, it will be at kind of the the beginning of what a lot of people are going to say is the peak of rutting activity across a lot of the country, especially in the Midwest, yep. the northern two-thirds of the country. These first couple of weeks of November yep. for a lot of people is that 
great rut time period. Um, so for those people right now who are getting into the real heart of it already, and then for those who maybe in December have that to look forward to down south, what are your your kind of keys to success during the rut? What are like the handful of things that you tell someone if they want to be able to kill a mature buck in the rut, do this? Well, don't get in the habit of hunting early only, only first thing in the morning and first thing in, in the afternoon. Just an afternoon hunt and a morning hunt and skip in the middle of the day because they can be moving at any time. And a lot of times we don't realize we're hunting. You're trying to hunt some food sources where the does may be coming through and the bucks are looking for does. So let's say you're hunting an acre flat. You've got 10 or 12 great uh, white oaks and they're in a certain spot. And you, you go in there. When you when you sneak in there in the dark, you're getting in there early before you're going to get set up before the sun even thinks about coming up. And you're getting to your stand, and all of a sudden you hear deer running. You may hear them. They may blow at you once they hear you. If, if you do it you under that stand correctly, you're going to have the wind in your face. So a trick there is to blow back at them. Just blow back at them. What they heard was a deer. It wasn't, wasn't a human. <laughs> or if they, it might be moonlit and they might can see you. But what you're doing is you're running the deer off of this spot, and you're teaching them that this is where the predators are coming to, the human predators are coming to. So a lot of times, let them leave that spot and go in at 10 o'clock. So hunting the rut is all about the does and all about the bucks looking for does. Food sources are good because the does are going to eat. They're going to be there. Wherever they're does, that's where the bucks are going to be. And you've just got to find those travel areas where they're going back and forth. I love hunting the Midwest because those, those, those pinch points were so, so active and so incredible. This deer went from one section to another section and used that pinch point to travel through um calling do it let them know you're there watch the wind like you've never watched it before and i will tell you this and i get a question all the time i've been using ozonics since the, the year it came out and if you use ozonics correctly and you use ozone correctly you can protect your downwind side mm-hmm. um at my farm i had nine ozone units uh, Zonix units, and I, nobody was allowed to hunt unless they were taught and used it, because the down the downwind side, if, if you, you you think you're hunting them like they're coming, but uh, a lot of times they're behind you, or they may be, you know, fifty seventy five yards behind you, never know it. And if you will protect that downwind side always and eliminate your odor, uh, then you have a lot better chance of being successful later on, even if you're not that day, and I will say this, uh, if the wind is blowing and gale forces uh, 12, 15 miles an hour and it's flatlining and just, you just, the the unit can't keep up. So don't expect it to be able to. In a blind, it's it's near 100% effective if you use it correctly. But I swear by it. uh, And I've got videos to prove it. It's unbelievable what you can get away with. Matter of fact, the guy that helps uh, my wife in the yard um, I, I gave him a unit, help him get a unit, and he um, he used it. He's already sent me two pictures of two bucks he killed down downwind from him wow. on food sources this year. So it, it's a truly, but don't expect it to do everything. And when I hunt with cameraman, we've got two units, and because you're trying to cover a wide spectrum of area, and the quick concept of it is is you want your scent line going through a curtain of ozone. 
if you're using the unit and you can smell the ozone, and ozone has a very clean hospital-type smell, then you're using it wrong. And can I tell you how many deer have come in downwind, does and bucks? And I've seen them come in, they stand there, and it's like they smell something, but they, they, they slap their, their tongue uh, on their nose like they're trying to grab a molecule or something and trying to figure it out. I don't know what that is. They, they go on right about their business. It's not anything they're scared of. Mm-hmm. Ozone is natural. Ozone is created by lightning when it goes through the air and breaks oxygen into O3. Very unstable. That's why it will attach itself to odor molecules and why it's so effective. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've experienced similar things to you when using an ozonics, and it's, it's definitely part of my repertoire now, too. Um, that said, yeah. what else is what else do you do from a scent control standpoint? Well, you know, if I like, I love to make a fake scrape rub not with a scent or anything um i i I just i'm so freaky about scents any scent you add i don't know where it's coming from or where it was bottled and there's cwd issues these days and whatever so i actually am using veterinarian um artificial inseminating gloves that go all the way up to my armpits and then i put latex gloves on top of that similar to the way you use gutting gloves and I spray my boots down with, we, we make what's called Control Freak, which is a silver-based odor eliminator. It eliminates odor, and it does a great job. You can prove it if you've got any kids and they play hockey and they got stinking shoes. Spray Control Freak in there, and you'll be amazed. It doesn't, and the odor will be gone. But it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't eliminate the odor your body constantly produces. That's why ozonics is so effective. Your breath, uh your body is producing odors the whole time. So you can spray control freak on you, but that doesn't mean it's going to keep on eliminating the odor your body's producing. So I spray my boots down, tall rubber boots, spray them down real good, wear these uh, long gloves and latex gloves, and I'll say, say I'm hunting a small food plot. I got a little small sapling growing out on a little island. I'll go out there and I'll take a saw, and I will shave the edge of that tree to make it look like a rub. And then I'll make a scrape. And if a deer comes, he visually sees that. He's going to walk over to it. I mean, I can make one this afternoon. And if a deer comes to that food plot tonight, it's going to have deer prints and paw marks in it. And ain't got any, ain't got any scent in it. So <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm doing that, too. Interesting. Depending on the situation and, I, you know, where the tree is. Yeah, like I've used somewhat similar tactics like that too you know planting like a fake scrape tree in the middle of a food plot just some way to to you know control where the traffic is headed yeah. to, to give yeah, yourself I think, a better I shot think, i think mark drury i did a video one time and showed doing that they were it's a great idea yeah. i never thought of that I thought, man they're gonna come to it they're going they're going to make a licking branch and figure it out you know because they think that's what's going on yeah yeah i mean they're very much you always hear the analogy that they kind of are like fish relating to structure deer relate to structure as well no doubt about it no doubt about it so so will i could probably talk to you for four hours about all this stuff um but i i know that you've got a lot of other things going on i don't want to do that to you so i wanted to kind of wrap things up with with this topic um and that's the future of deer hunting. Um, I've, I've heard you and I've seen you um, kind of stand up and speak out about things over the last handful of the years um, at some of these North American deer summits and in relation to some of the different things happening these days in the hunting community. 
Um, I guess, how do you feel about the future of deer hunting? What do you see coming up? And then um, if you had a a final message to leave with our audience um, about that, um, we'd love to hear that. Well, you know, as far as bow hunters go, whitetail bow hunters, gun hunters to some extent, but we are loners. We like privacy. We like going into the woods, being quiet. We're all bird watchers. We're watching wild. We just enjoy being there. We enjoy the fall colors and seeing seeing God's creation in the woods. And it goes against our nature, but I urge people to find somebody uh, that wants to learn about archery, about the romance of, of the era. Teach him about Saxon Pope and Art Young, about Ishi about Howard Hill, about Fred Bayer, about the history of the bow and arrow, the, the, the Indians, and light that fire. And it's, I, I call it the romance of, of the arrow, the flight of that arrow. It's just, it's just romantic. And then spend time with them to, to learn proper form, to help them get the right equipment. Don't cut them short. Get them the best equipment that you can or that they can help buy or afford you know, I've, I've had seen kids that have gotten jobs cutting grass in the summer so they could buy a certain site, or and and it just is wonderful to see them get so involved in it. Um, John Vaca is a guy that uh, is head over the pro staff for all of Bushnell and Federal and um, Savage, and he they help promote those lines. And his son, he sent me a picture yesterday of his son who killed his first buck by himself solo with a bow and there's it's just like passing the torch and what john did in raising his son he showed him and 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 taught him and exposed him to this world that we love and cherish and if you love it and you cherish then you want to protect it and you want to share it with people and if we as hunters don't recruit younger new people because there's a lot of kids out there that don't have hunting parents and don't have opportunity. And if we don't do it, then they're not going to understand it. And if they don't understand it, they're not going to love it. They're not going to want to protect it. Um, so the future of hunter hunting is really, it, it's up to us. Um, I, I was so proud of John Vaca's even that picture of his son and had that big smile on his face. And um, I know what, I know it, it I know what that's, that's got to be like for John to suddenly pass the torch, you know, and now his son's going to be going by himself. There's huge safety issues. How to use a, a, a harness, a safety harness, how to properly get in the tree with the safety harness attached so that you're not putting yourself into a position to possibly hurt yourself. And those, some of those accidents can be incredibly tragic, not only death, but paralyzed for life. You know, and end what you what what you wanted to find anyway in that by going and doing that was the peace and quiet of the outdoors. Um, as far as the different states, they all have different ideas and and, and different rules and regulations. Uh, Mississippi doesn't allow baiting. <clears throat> Arkansas does. Louisiana does. Kansas does for some. And you know, people get upset about. Um, people baiting, they get upset about people using crossbows. Look, I, I, I remember they drug me into the compound world 
they, they drug me. I, I said, there's no way that this thing with wheels on it will ever be as good and effective as my recurve. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. But I love a compound. I shoot Matthews, and I just love what Matt McPherson does and his engineering on his bows. I love them. I also love the recurve. And I got my black wood sitting right here on the table. And um, I love the flight of the arrow. Uh, but when they get to arguing about people with crossbows, man, if a guy will go out in the woods and be a hunter and be a part of it, I don't care if he uses a rock. You know, uh, I, I want them to go. I want people to go and experience it and want to be there. I don't want to restrict them. I want them to follow the laws of the state where the state thinks it's right. But um, I, I just want people to participate, and I want people to to be a part and to understand what it is we love so much. A friend of mine, he decided not to go bow hunting Saturday, and he went squirrel hunting. And I was talking to him, and I'm standing there looking at him. His name's John Stevens. And uh, he says, man, he was peaceful. And he's finding deer trails, and he's scouting while he's hunting squirrels. He killed his limit of squirrels, and and talk about how it was a cold front had come through. It was, it was, you know, right at 35 degrees. It just had a blast being in the woods. And that's what it's all about. And that's what we need to share and teach to, to those that are around us, in front of us, behind us. We need to share it. We need to teach them. I think that is uh, an incredibly important message. So appreciate you, uh, appreciate you wrapping things up with that. It was kind of perfect way to end this. So, so Will, if people well, want, well, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say, if people wanted to um, see your show or follow uh, different things you're doing or check out some of the products that you mentioned, where might they be able to find all these different things? Well, of course, you can go to Primo's, P-R-I-M-O-S dot com, to the website. You can go to Primo's YouTube channel, and you can see all kind of tips and see uh, different hunts. You can see elk hunts and waterfowl hunts and predator hunts and deer hunts, of course, and uh you see all of that. Um, and then with they, their, their podcast available that the company does. Uh, so there, there's many, many avenues to be able to get to us. Um, but the TV show is on the Outdoor Channel. Um, and it's got, I think it's four airings a week. And you just have to go to Outdoor Channel and look up those airings. Make sure you've got the right time slot for your, your zone, whether it be central or mountain or, or eastern or whatever it is. Uh, to be able to know exactly when the show is coming on, but uh, we're having fun with the show. We're, we've got a great place to hunt. And we're taking advantage of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, well, Will, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be here with us. We really, really appreciate it. Yes, sir, Mark. Thank you. Good luck to everybody, all your listeners. Good luck, y'all. Be careful, and please be careful climbing those trees. Yeah, and good luck to you too. I uh, hope to see some pictures of uh, of some big bucks soon, and looking forward to watching episodes of the show in the future too. Thank you, Will. Ten four. Thanks, Mark. And that is a wrap. Episode number one eighty one is in the books. But a couple quick updates before we shut this down completely. You know, as me and Dan were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, our hunts are ramping up. Things are getting exciting. So. Want to encourage you to follow along with us on social media. I'm posting a lot of updates there. Um, the Wired Hunt Facebook page is a great place to get things. Wired Hunt on Twitter, I'm sharing things there. And then, and most of all, what I'm doing is sharing 
every day I'm sharing Instagram stories. So over on Instagram, you can share these little mini videos and photos and things like that. That's the story, um, the Instagram story feature. And I'm kind of documenting each day of hunting on there pretty thoroughly. So make sure you're checking those out. Um, my handle is at the at sign wired to hunt, all one word. That's on Instagram. Sign up for it. Check it out. That way you can follow along with what's going on and be the very first to hear about how things go for Holyfield and everything else going on. And then, of course, you can find Dan's uh, information over there at the Nine Finger Chronicles if you want to follow along with his Iowa hunts or uh, parenting debacles. So um, I guess other than that, I just want to leave you with a quick thank you to our partners who helped make this whole thing happen. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And then finally, thank you. Thank you to all of you spending time with us here today for listening. I know it's a busy time of year, so carving out some time to listen to a podcast, I appreciate it. So good luck out in the woods. Hopefully you're going to have some incredible hunts, some awesome memories. And until next time, have fun, be safe. Good luck and stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.